0: Welcome to Talking Human Rights. I'm Heather Roberson Gaston and welcome to part two of our series Palestinian Gandhi on trial with our special guest Issa Amro. Isa has been called the Gandhi of Palestine for his work in promoting and organizing strategic nonviolent resistance among Palestinians, Israelis, and their allies all over the world, resistance aimed at ending the Israeli military occupation of the West Bank and of the city of Hebron, where Isa lives. ISA has also, increasingly over the years, been identified as a targeted activist, targeted with arrests, detentions, threats, beatings, and now this targeting of ISA has reached a new level. Now, as a direct result of his work as a prominent human rights activist in the West Bank, really one of the most prominent human rights activists in the West Bank, ISA has been put on sort of an endless trial before two courts, before an Israeli court and before a Palestinian authority court. In the Israeli case, Isa is charged with things like planning a demonstration against the military occupation under which he lives without first seeking a permit from the occupying military. In the Palestinian case, Isa is charged under a highly controversial electronic crimes law, his crime being a Facebook post criticizing the Palestinian Authority for its treatment of a journalist. In the last episode, we started laying out the context of these cases and talking about the military occupation of the West Bank in general, how it works, what it looks like, maybe a bit of what it feels like. I put a bunch of photos onto the website at www.talkinghumanrights.com because I believe you have to see this thing, this occupation, to begin to understand it. And in fact, I think you have to see it to believe it. Now... In part two here we're going to learn more about Isa and his work as an activist and we're going to do some more work to flesh out the local context in which he works, the specific context of the city of Hebron. There's a reason that we have to get so specific. So if you listened to the last episode and looked at our materials you've learned a bit about the occupation of the West Bank in general. But something really important to understand is that Even though the whole West Bank is under military occupation, it's not all under occupation in the same way. It's different depending on where you go. For instance, if you travel around the rural areas of the West Bank, which is to say most of the West Bank, you are traveling in what is called area C. And in Area C, you will see a very direct form of occupation where the Palestinians are directly occupied and overseen by the Israeli military. So If you are a Palestinian and you want to build a water line or you want to build a school or you want to build a house, you have to get a permit from the Israeli military. And that's why you see a lot of people in this part of the West Bank in Area C living in tents and living in caves. So that's one level of occupation. That's Area C. So then you have the big cities like Ramallah and Bethlehem, and these are called Area A. In Area A, the occupation works differently. In Area A, you have what is called the Palestinian Authority. And I don't want to overstate The power of the Palestinian Authority, it's really crucial to understand that the PA is not a government, but is more of a local administrator that exists within the occupation and is required to cooperate with the occupation, but still... It does employ Palestinians to provide some local administration, even while under occupation, and it it does provide something of a buffer. So when you go to these big cities, you don't tend to see so much military infrastructure and you don't tend to see Israeli settlers. But Hebron is different. Hebron itself is actually divided into two levels of occupation. But the part of the city that we are concerned with, where Issa lives, which you will hear us refer to as the old city or the old town, and you'll also hear it referred to as H2, as in Hebron 2, that part of the city is under direct military occupation. Here's Issa describing what that's like.
1: Hebron is almost a military area, soldiers on rooftops, checkpoints, closures, settlers with guns, cameras for the army. So you feel that you are in a military base, completely restricted, full of soldiers, full of settlers, full of guns, full of weapons. Your kids will see guns 24-7 you will hear shooting you will hear soldiers training in your own uh, city maybe they come to your house to have a training on your house on you you will be a training object for the soldiers that is life in hebron
0: so first thing i want to say here is that isa is not exaggerating for effect in hebron Everywhere you go, you see soldiers, hundreds of soldiers. You see them pouring in through the doors of people's apartments, marching up their stairs, emerging onto their rooftops where sometimes uh, the soldiers have built watchtowers. So if the family goes up to their rooftop to say, do their laundry, the soldiers can say, you must leave now. Your roof is a closed military zone. That's the terminology that they use. In Hebron, you see entire city blocks closed off by gates closed off by other barriers entire city blocks entirely emptied out filling up with trash and debris you'll see block after block of shops that have been closed their their doors welded shut the gates to get to them welded shut and all of this is part of the army's ongoing effort to evacuate huge parts of the city people call it a ghost town for this reason. It's really shocking and scary, and it's a lot to get your arms around. Um, Your first thought would be, naturally, that it looks like a war zone. And you might think, well, this just must be what war is like. But it's actually not a war zone. There's only one army here. And then there are thousands of people just living their lives and trying to live their lives and sometimes There are people like Isa who come along and say, no, this is no way to live. We shouldn't be living under brutal occupation in this way. And let's organize everyone and let's protest it. So let's see, what else do I need to tell you to introduce this place? Um, I should tell you that it's really beautiful. I, I encourage you to look at the photos and videos online to get a feel for the place. But if you can't do that right now, that's okay And... Maybe you can just try and conjure up a vision in your mind's eye of Jerusalem. If you've been there or you've seen it, what you might be imagining is winding pathways, beautiful buildings, everything sort of locked together like puzzle pieces, all made of the same golden stone. And Hebron has all of that. Hebron looks like that. While the two cities are hardly twins, they're definitely siblings if that makes sense. And just to give you a sense of the spiritual significance of this city, the hallmark of Hebron, the main focal point, is a quite large and quite, I think, foreboding looking building that is made of enormous stone blocks. So enormous that you might wonder how these blocks could ever have been stacked on top of each other. And this building, the original structure of the building, dates back to the time of Herod the Great. The Palestinians call it the Ibrahimi Mosque. The Israelis call it the cave of the patriarchs. But what everybody I know in Hebron agrees on is that under this building, sort of protected by these enormous foreboding walls, is a cave that is written about in the book of Genesis, is the cave of Mach Palach. And this cave is said to be the place that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and sons, Jacob and Isaac, and their sons' wives, Rebecca and Leah, are said to be laid to their final rest. So this city that we're talking about, it's really beautiful. It's really significant. It is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's the kind of place you might like to visit and see were it not to be under brutal and scary and dangerous occupation. And the final piece of introduction that I need to give you, which falls into the category of, you know, why is this all happening? Why is this place like this? Is I need to introduce the settlers of Hebron. This is a very radical group of settlers we're talking about who have decided that they must live in the heart of the largest Palestinian city of the West Bank. You don't usually see things like this. You don't usually see settlers in the middle of Palestinian cities, except this one. Um, You usually see them in the countryside in area C where the Israeli military exerts, like I said, complete control and where the settlers can feel protected. But in Hebron, you have this very small, very radical group of Israeli settlers who snuck into the city back in 1968, right after the military occupation of the West Bank began. Um, They disguised themselves as tourists coming to Hebron to celebrate Passover. They rented rooms in a local Palestinian hotel. And when the holiday was over, when Passover was over, they refused to leave and they had to be dragged out actually by the Israeli military. But they have been able to establish a few small settlements within the city and that's why there are so many soldiers there, thousands of soldiers to protect this, you know, few hundred, 500 settlers. If you travel to Hebron, you will have no trouble finding a settler to tell you these stories as this is their folklore. This is a source of pride to defy their own government and to push their own government. They're very effective activists. And from their perspective, It was brave to sneak into the city over and over again until finally they could establish just a few settlements. And from their perspective, the Israeli army's clearing out of Palestinian shops and homes to create ultimately a buffer zone between the settlers and the Palestinians, brutalizing Palestinians in the process of creating a safe space for these settlers to live. Well, it hasn't been enough. So these are the things that you would just learn walking around Hebron, um, meeting with people there. And I want you to know them before Issa and I start talking so that what we're talking about makes sense to you. So the first thing I asked Issa when we sat down was when did he first become politically conscious? I thought maybe it would have been during the first intifada, the first Palestinian uprising against the occupation that was lauded for all of the nonviolent organizing that happened. And here's what he had to say about that.
1: I don't remember anything from the first Intifada except, you know, some women mobilizing protests, uh, people having strikes, closing the shops, closing the streets. Uh, because my family wanted me to be a good student and I was studying hard in school. The first milestone in my life was the Ibrahimi Mosque Massacre when Baruch Goldstein went into the mosque and killed 29 Palestinians, I was blocked from going to school for three months because of the massacre. And we lost two students from my school who were killed by Baruch Goldstein. And one of them was playing uh, soccer with us every morning.
0: So I wanna make sure that people know that when we're talking about the Ibrahimi Mosque, massacre. We're talking about a massacre perpetrated by an Israeli settler who in 1994 disguised himself as an Israeli soldier and snuck into the Ibrahimi Mosque during Friday prayers and killed, as Issa said, 29 Palestinian worshippers. It's important for American listeners to know that Baruch Goldstein was born an American, radicalized in America by a radical American rabbi named Mayer Kahane, who himself founded an extremist, political movement that was banned by the Israeli parliament and designated by the U.S. government as a terrorist organization. Um, But back to you, Isa, I'm sorry. Please tell us what happened after the massacre.
1: It was Friday morning. All Hebron was shouting, screaming about what happened. And all the people were asking each other to go to volunteer plot. And people were very, very angry about what happened. And the reaction of the army was very violent, and uh, around six people were killed outside the mosque. 29 Palestinians were killed inside the mosque by Baruch Goldstein, and six people were killed by the soldiers. And people were were trying, you know, to take their relatives from hospital who were killed to bury them in the cemeteries, because people were afraid that the army may take the bodies.
0: And the soldiers put you under curfew after the massacre, didn't they? Um, Was it for three months?
1: After the Ibrahim mosque massacre, I didn't go to my school for three months. The area of my school wa- was closed for three months because of an Israeli, American, fanatic, uh, extremist Kahanist went into the mosque and killed the Palestinians in the mosque. We were killed. We were, v- we were the victims of the massacre, of the Ibrahim mosque massacre, and we paid the price for that.
0: And can you tell us what a curfew is?
1: It means that you are not allowed to leave the house every few days. They give you one hour, two hours to go to do some kind of shopping, but you don't, you are not working from where you will have money to do shopping. So they made people live in poverty, in spite that it was the most crowded area of shops, full of people, full of shops, very expensive shops, and very beautiful area. After the Ibrahimi Mosque massacre, everything is closed. And the closure was expanded
0: after the second intifada. And what happened when you were finally able to leave your house again, when the curfew was finally lifted?
1: I went back to school, and I went back to see the closures. How the streets were divided, how Shuhada Street is closed, how shops are closed, how we had segregated roads, one for the settlers and one for the Palestinians. That left a huge amount of anger in me because we were the victims of the massacre and we were punished uh, because we are weaker, because we, we are not, we don't have the same rights as the settlers have in our own city.
0: So while you were inside during the curfews, the army was changing the face of the city, closing streets and shops. And you mentioned Shahada Street, which for people listening is the main street of Hebron that the soldiers took away from the Palestinians and reserved for use of the military and the settlers. And I know, Isa, you've spent so much activism trying to get this street reopened to Palestinians just to be able to walk on it. But do you mind describing a bit what Shahada Street was like when you were a kid?
1: And Shuhada Street was the center of the city. It was our Times Square. Everybody coming to Hebron should go and visit Shuhada Street, it's the connection between the south and north and south and eastern parts of the city. The main cemetery is there, the Ibrahimi mosque is there, vegetable fruits market was there, the wholesale market was there, the main pass station was in, in Shuhada Street. It was the heart of, of Hebron. Now Palestinians are not allowed to walk in the majority of the street. They are not allowed to drive anywhere in the street. We have around 1,800 shops closed in the street and around the street. Among them, around 520 shops closed in Shuhada Street by military orders. We have around 1,000 Palestinian apartments empty because many apartments are in, in Shuhada Street. Certain families, they use the back door to get into their homes because the main doors are, are closed. I know a Palestinian family use the roof to get into the house. I don't think life will come back to the old city of Hebron without reopening Shuhada Street for the Palestinians.
0: You know, it's true. Just walking around Hebron, it feels like someone came and killed not just the people living in the city, but killed the city itself. Um, I wonder if we can switch gears. I want to ask you about the second intifada, the second Palestinian uprising against the occupation. I know This time was filled with so much violence and repression, but my understanding is that it's also when you really came into being as a nonviolent activist. And can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Uh, My family didn't want me to participate in the Second Intifada. I was doing very well in university, studying very hard, sometimes studying 12 hours a day after, after university to get my engineering degree. In the last year of my engineering degree, in the middle of the Second Intifada, I went to school, I found the way to my school closed. They sealed the doors, they welded the gates, and they declared the campus as a closed military zone. For me, it was a very hard moment because it was my last semester and uh, it was my life. And I went home very angry. I was even crying about it. How come, what I did to lose my degree? It was not about occupation, it was not about human rights violations, it's about about me. You know, it's about it was only about Isa studying very hard for four years and a half. And I chose to study in Palestine, not to study outside Palestine because I wanted to stay near my family. And I chose my, my major. I liked it. I wanted to be an electrical engineer and to do postgraduates and to do my, my PhD and to go on my educational track. So I went home and I I went to Yahoo because Yahoo was the main search engine. And I I wrote how to make a revolution. For me, it was a revolution. I was lucky to get a lot of information about non-violence revolutions. I read a lot about Gandhi. I read a a lot about the civil rights movement in the US, about Martin Luther King. I read about Mandela and the anti-apartheid movement in, in South Africa. I read all of that. I went back to school and i told the students let's fight the closure of our university and the first thing we did we established a committee of seven students we were all in the engineering college and we started mobilizing the palestinians and i remember that the first action we did was closing the main street in hebron for the palestinians and everybody was telling me what what is this are you crazy you're closing the street for the palestinians what how you will affect the occupation i told them it's written in the books to generate public opinion. And then we went to the governor, to the mayor office, and we told them, you should go with us to university or we close your, your offices too, to, to recruit them. Then we started our activities and actions, and it took us six months to recruit the students and to convince the students and from one-to-one meeting to group meetings and to recruit the media and to recruit international activists who will come with us. It took us around six months. And then we occupied the campus with a few thousand students. We won and winning that big victory for me made me think that I can use nonviolence resistance to get rid of occupation.
0: And again, you were under curfew for much of this time, organizing the students. And, you know, there must have been soldiers everywhere. And you're not supposed to leave your house or be doing anything like what you were doing
1: was the middle of the second intifada mm-hmm. we had tanks on, all, all over the streets and this is why we uh, said okay it, it must be peaceful because, And it was a tactic for me in the beginning and i i said okay it's the only way to do it and let's try and we were just you know hiding the brochures we were hiding the press releases we were meeting in secret places we were you know we were not using the phones we were really careful as a group of organizers not to be caught for what we were doing, because it's illegal. You know, even organizing peaceful, non-violent campaigning for the students to reopen their university, it's illegal.
0: Do you ever see any of those guys, your fellow students who you organized with?
1: Yes, we we see each other and we were very proud of that time to reopen the university and work uh, against the closure of our university. And now we are more aware of what we were doing. That time we were not aware.
0: So what happens next? You get the university reopened, which is amazing and extremely impressive. And um, then what happens?
1: I graduated. I got my degree with very good marks. And I became addicted to non-violence resistance. So I established International Solidarity Movement in Hebron to fight the wall around uh, the city, in the villages. I started mobilizing people in uh, South Mount Hebron. We managed to bring back Gawais
0: village. Wow, I I really want you to talk about this. Um, So for people listening, we're talking here about Area C, the rural area that is most of the West Bank, where the Israeli military exerts direct occupation over the Palestinians and where you will see people living in tents and caves with no running water, no electricity, because they're not allowed by the army to build that stuff. And I just want you to talk about this, Issa, for a couple of reasons. One... Here you are a Palestinian activist and you go to resettle a Palestinian village. But what you're doing, if I understand it, is you're actually helping to implement a decision of the Israeli high court. Because the court had already said that these villagers could go back to their village. And it was the soldiers and settlers who wouldn't let them stay in defiance of this high court order. And it makes me wonder if the High Court is something that you can use?
1: Okay, Uh, my experience with the Israeli Supreme Court is that usually Palestinians lose in the the court for many reasons. The first reason is because it costs a lot of money and the judge is usually biased to the Israeli uh, occupation. And i see that the supreme court is part of the occupation and the the israeli institutions in general they are part of the occupation they 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 maintain the occupation in a way or another but sometimes we get some 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 victories in the israeli uh, supreme court and in the beginning of my activism, 2004, I got a call from Palestinian villages saying that they won a Supreme Court decision to go back to their village, and they are not able to implement it because whenever they go back to their village, the settlers attack them and the soldiers don't protect them and dismiss them. I, I, I went there with international prisons. We slept there with the, with the, with the families and the whole village was afraid and they didn't believe that we have power as non-violence activists. The settlers tried to come and attack us but they found the cameras, they found activists speaking English and Hebrew and Arabic and talking to them with confrontation. They escaped the first night, the second night the settlers tried to attack us, they escaped and then now the family is inhabited and they have the best NGO in South Mount Hebron. It's called Commit Me, which is giving solar panels and renewable energy for the Brazilian families who are living all over South Mount Hebron. So you can th- you can see that they brought electricity to the people there, and they are living in one of the houses where I slept in 2004. So it's a big victory, but it's not the case now. The Supreme Court is much more right wing now and the army is much more right-wing, and the settlers feel more confident, especially after all the green lights they got from the Trump administration to do whatever they want, and after the appointment of the new American ambassador to, to Israel, who is supporting settlements, and he feels that he's part of the settlement community, and he's very biased.
0: It's such an important thing for Americans, to know I think the impact of what we do who we elect on your situation but I want to talk more about this phase of your activism because you know I remember my first time going into the South Hebron Hills Isa hiking into this area where only one family lived in a cave in view of a settler outpost and I remember how scary it was to be out there in this incredibly barren landscape that you can't reach by car, that you can't reach by trail, that you actually have to hide where you're going. And I remember when we finally arrived at the cave and it was just pitch black because, again, no electricity. So tell us what it was like for you to go there in 2004.
1: It was the beginning of my activism. And you can say that I was afraid of soldiers and I was afraid of guns. I was afraid of settlers. And when the people from the village asked us to escort them and go to their village and stay with them, it was an impossible mission. It was not easy to go to darkness, uh, to go to a place without a restroom, without, without electricity. So you are uh, going to nowhere knowing that Israeli settlers and soldiers with guns may attack you in the night, they may shoot you and nobody will know about it and you have no place to escape to. So it was not easy for me to go, but I usually go over my fear by saying that, you know, what I'm doing is important and the outcome and the impact of the activities will be for years used by other human rights offenders. And now GOE is full in, fully inhabited. And I'm f- so proud of myself and the others who were with me. It's a kind of action that everything is possible. Nothing is impossible for activists. Just you need to try and you need to be brave and you need to, you need to know that you are not alone. You have many supporters in the world. And you are not a cheap target to the authorities. The authorities are afraid of you more than you are
0: afraid of them. So you really faced your fears. And it sounds like there was a real payoff for doing that.
1: I can say that that experience made me more brave. It gave me more courage to go over my darkness phobia. That the darkness will not stop me from doing anything. It gave me more courage uh, to go over the phobia of the soldiers and the settlers. So it was very important for me as Isa to do that action. It was really one of the best things I did in my life to go over a lot of my weakness. You know, you know. Now I'm I'm much stronger. I could do it like that in the in that time. I remember it was a hard decision and I didn't sleep all the night. I was not able to sleep. I was not able to even, it was not easy, but then by time now I'm much stronger and I can do anything alone and or with others like that.
0: Wow, that's that's incredible. Um, and I have to ask what it was like when you, when you did get up in the morning after of course not having slept. I, I just remember the first time I woke up in the South Hebron Hills, coming out of a cave and it was just so bright and it was so sunny and everywhere you look it's just golden dust and sand as far as you can see are just rolling hill after rolling hill um, and it's all just beautiful what was it like for you Yes, for sure. You know because you
1: know, two thousand and four, it was the beginning. Then I went many times to the to sleep in the caves. I like the area a lot. I like the sunset. I like the sunrise. So I like the, the you know hearing the dogs in the night. I like to hear the the birds in the morning. I, li- I like I like the life there. I like the, I like the sheep. I like to see the workers sneaking in from that area to go to work inside Israel. So I, I think it's really amazing. It became part of my life. It's even became part of my satisfaction as a person to go and see and it's a kind of sightseeing for me now to go sleep in a cave in the middle of the in the middle of nowhere, you can say.
0: You know, the story of you facing your fear, it makes sense to me because you know you've inspired so many people to be brave. And I think if anyone were to describe you, Issa, brave would probably be the first word they would use and so you know this is how you how you got brave by doing something really scary and building your strength and meeting all these people along the way who are also getting braver and and then you take this energy back to hebron where i have to imagine people were pretty scared to follow you so tell us what happens next
1: then we decided to come to the Old city of Hebron and start fighting the apartheid policies. It was Palestinians, Israelis and internationals working together to highlight the human rights violations and then I said that I should establish a Palestinian group to recruit Palestinian youth to join non-violence resistance. So we established a group called Youth Against Settlements and from one campaign to another we generated public opinion in Hebron and in the world about non-violence resistance in our own city and about the human rights violations. And we managed to increase a lot of awareness about what is happening in the city. And we managed to give the Palestinians a tool and even a culture to document the human rights violations, to use the video camera In the beginning of distributing the cameras, it was impossible to give to the people because they were afraid to use, afraid they will be a target, afraid that the army will banish them, they will break the cameras, they will take the cameras. Because the people in Palestine know that the army can do whatever they want. Under the military law, you don't have any right. So we started convincing the women. And the women listened to us because we told them this is a tool to defend your children and you defend your husband and to defend your house. Then by time, it became a culture. So people react without any kind of mobilization by their smartphone cameras, by their own cameras. And they put it online and they send it to us to send it out and use it for documentation, use it for legal cases, for advocacy and media and especially the international media.
0: That's really incredible. And I know this really caught on in the region and that the Israeli human rights group, B'Tselem, ultimately asked you to help them reproduce this project all over the West Bank. And so you trained people all over the West Bank to do the documentation work that you started in Hebron. And you actually won an international award for that work, the One World Media Award in 2009. And the accolades just keep coming in at this time. And not uncoincidentally, the monitoring of your activities by the authorities, um, the arrests, the detentions, they also increase in this period. But I wanna, I wanna fast forward to the year 2016 and to the event that is said to have been kind of the last straw, the event where the Israeli military finally decided that they would compile 18 charges against you going back to 2010 and that they would put you On trial. So what were you doing at the time that this all started, Isa, on that day in 2016?
1: We got a call from Jewish community here in the U.S. and we got around 120 Jewish activists coming from the U.S. to Palestine to participate in our non-violence resistance and they wanted to participate in one of the actions. We decided together to establish a cinema in Hebron, the only cinema for 800,000 Palestinians in Hebron district. And we started doing it confidentially, not to let the army know what are we doing, in a Palestinian-closed factory to protect it from the settlers and reverse it to be a community center and uh, uh, a cinema. And we managed to surprise the army, despite that they tried to stop us, Palestinians, Israelis, and Americans muslims christians jews and seculars and all people were together working hand in hand and we were saying that occupation is not our judaism occupation is not our religion and nonviolence is our main method to end the israeli occupation by strengthening the palestinian civil society and the palestinian people the occupation didn't like that the occupation declared the area as a closed military zone. A few activists were arrested that day. And after that, they started my indictment with 18 military charges. So that, that was the year. And what that was the trigger for them to open 18 military charges and take me to court and collect all my charges from 2010 to 2016
0: so i wonder if you can talk a little bit about the state of the movement um, which i know is not so good right now
1: i can say that the movement is uh, suffering from uh, a shortage of activists because you know to be an activist to be very high price me personally i'm paying very high price i was attacked physically many times so i was arrested many times many many times detained and many other activists they face the same attacks on them attacks on their families attacks on their friends so if you are a non-violence activist israeli or international or palestinian pay a very high price they deported many uh, international activists they prevent them from coming they they question them you know us as peaceful activists you know they are isolating us from the world they are isolating us from our uh, activist communities they are isolating us from the international community and we we became uh, really uh, a target and the fr- our friends they became a target. You are not allowed even to criticize Israel now, and they may consider you anti Semite if you are criticizing human rights violations. If you are pro Palestinians, pro human rights, pro peace, pro justice, pro equality, you will be labeled as, as anti Semite, you will be labeled terrorist. Uh, you will be labeled, you know, as anarchist or as I don't know what. They find a label for you just to disconnect you from your own community and dis- disconnect you from influencing the public opinion, even in Israel or in Palestine or even in, in the U.S. here.
0: So how do you get people to join you?
1: I, I try to to talk to their, uh, to their morals, to their principles, and I tell them, you want to be a normal human being and nobody mentions you in, in, in history or you want to be a human rights defender and be mentioned and be heroes. And, you know, many people, they, are, they, they want to be heroes. And I think Martin Luther King gave his life for his own people. And Mandela gave 30 years from his life in jail for his own people. And me personally, I want myself to, to be mentioned as a human rights defender. That's all. That's, that there is no change without sacrifice. And the price is high. We try to reduce it by bringing more international attention. And this is what we are waiting from the American audience who are listening now to write to the Congress to support Palestinian rights, to write to the media, to talk to their communities, to come to Palestine and see the situation, to to, to support Palestinian uh, initiatives and, and projects on the ground to protect human rights defenders by raising their voices and connecting them to other resources here in the States
0: so people in the united states can do a lot here i think i'm hearing you say
1: the moment we have hope that our resistance in the ground will be effective many people will join us so if we have a for example you know an american president supporting palestinian rights the american congress they understand our self-determination that will encourage people to stand up so you know the hope will come from outside me personally i'm i'm so moved now about american young activists in the schools and in the campuses here in the universities too uh, i can think that, there, that the movement is growing here that gives us hope I hope that the movement will be bigger all over the world, which will influence our work on the ground to recruit more Palestinians to join.
0: And what does it mean for the movement that you have been targeted in this way, that you could go to jail for years?
1: I can say, you know, if they target me more, it means they know that I am influencing my people and this kind of work is really valuable. So I will keep doing it. I, I, sometimes I'm more careful than other times, uh, so that that is taking into consideration not to give them any excuse or any mission to put me in jail or to put other activists in jail.
0: But taking you out will impact the movement?
1: First of all, they will affect my fellow activists. I think nonviolence will be less attractive to people and they will affect our nonviolence movement in Palestine and in the world by taking me in jail and isolating me and, you know, taking away all my experience in mobilizing and uh, talking to the public.
0: And the toll this must take on you as a person, I just, I can't imagine.
1: Me, I'm very sad and disappointed for being uh, indicted. I'm very sad for going to court. I don't feel well, I'm very stressed. You can see the last two, three years in my life were horrible. Because I, I have nightmares to be in jail, I don't want to go to jail. I thought that you know the Israeli occupation will not target me for my non-violence resistance. I was very careful and and I was doing very well to incite my people to nonviolence and talk to them in a language that nonviolence is the best methodology to end occupation. I'm very proud of them now that it became a culture. It's a matter of time to have a real massive mobilization. The only problem now is our leadership, that we need a stronger young leadership to take us to civil disobedience. The occupation is afraid of that. For sure, the occupation will try to defend itself from me and from any kind of peaceful mobilization. So they are using all type of threats, all types of of, uh, detention, all types of indictment. They will try to put me in jail. And I I think that putting me in jail means destroying my 15 years of work to increase the culture of nonviolence. Because many people see me as a hero for using the, this track for a long time and doing very well and they have a lot of winning and have a lot of examples to tell people it's working it's doing well and we can do well with our non-violence approach but the occupation and the supporters of the occupation don't distinguish between a palestinian who believes in non-violence or a palestinian who believes in any kind of other uh, resistance they target the palestinians because they are Palestinians, they target the Palestinians because they want to destroy their will, to resist the occupation even peacefully, and they target the Palestinians to make them sacrifice their rights and to accept to live as second or a third class citizen in their own country without any political rights and even without any kind of basic
0: human rights. Wow, so we're going to wrap up this episode, and in the next episode, we're going to talk more about the uneven legal system and the context that allows cases like the one launched against Isa to happen. We'll talk about why people use the word apartheid to describe it. It's such a hot button word to use, but it's really important to understand what is being referred to here and what this means. So that will be episode 3, but Before we say goodbye to episode two, because we focus so much on Hebron in this episode, I want to end with where conversations often end when you're talking to a Palestinian from Hebron, and that is they end up at Shahada Street just talking about what it was, talking about its beauty, how much it meant to them, and just mourning the loss. And I think it's really beautiful and meaningful, and it's worth listening to. So here we go.
1: I remember Hebron from all the closure. I remember Hebron when I used to wake up in the morning around six to hear the shopkeepers, the vegetable market, alive. They used to open. And I I remember them calling to sell their potatoes, their tomatoes and the, and the season of the watermelon, they start screaming the, 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 the shopkeepers and the, the vendors in the street about their, their vegetables, their fruits, their, their, their products there. I, I, I know that, the, that market shop by shop. I remember when I was a child, I was moving around, playing around, cycling around in that area. Not anymore. The shops are closed, the market is closed. I'm not allowed to walk there. I'm not allowed to go to the house where I was born and which we own. And I see the settlers, they have all of that. It's not only the vegetable market or the fruits market or the second hand market or the wholesale market. All markets were there, carpenter's market blacksmith market. I used to make my toys there. You know, it was full of people and shops and workshops there. And I remember the meat market and the chicken market and the birds market. I remember the camels market. And it's one of my favorite to go to see the camels in the morning to escape from my mother. I remember it when I was four or five even, when I was escaping from the house to go to see the the camels or to drink Some milk, call it a special name, you know, that that milk. You get a really tasty, fat milk from the new mother's. Wait,
0: was this camel milk, or is this?
1: Camel's milk, cow's milk, sheep's milk, goat's milk. Everything was there. The area where the settlers now are, was the main shopping area for the West Bank. So crowded, my father used to hold my arm not to lose me. Not the souk, the souk is smaller than the open space. And you know, when you, when you want to do anything, you had to go there to fix your shoes is there, to buy anything for your animal is there.
0: And there's a bus station, or was a bus
1: station? Even a bus station, and even a parking's there, and, and everything was there. And the doctors, the engineers, the offices, the fuel station, everything was closed. Go to Times Square, look around, and imagine the same crowds used to be in the street many many from the shopkeepers they broke i see some of them selling in the street now in spite that they used to have big shops they didn't have a capital to reopen other shops uh, who had capital they reopened uh, shops somewhere else but many of them lost their life business it's a family business too
0: and when you, walk, when you walk around in the neighborhood and you see all of the horrible things that have
1: happened to it, do you, do you still find it beautiful? I used to be happy to be arrested, to go in the jeep in that area to see it. I used to look from the windows, you know, when I'm not blindfolded or even if I'm blindfolded, I used to try to, you know, to look, to see, you know, to see the area where I'm not allowed to be. I used to feel a little bit, you know, excited to be in a military jeep or an Israeli police jeep to pass by that closed area. The same for me, it was to be transferred from the detention center in Gush Etzion to the military court in Ofer through Jerusalem to see Jerusalem to where I'm not allowed as a Palestinian to be. This is why they blindfold uh, me that not to see, not, and it's kind of harassment. It's kind of uh, Uh, insulting you, you know, you are handcuffed, blindfolded, just as a kind of, you know, controlling you and destroying your uh, passion that to make you feel angry. You know, sometimes they put me in the bus station and sometimes they take me to Korea Arba police station. Yeah, yeah, I know it well. I know it by heart. I used to go there and I can say that it's still Palestinian architecture. They didn't change how it's how it looks. It is. It is. Yeah. It is a bus station.
0: Okay. So that's Isa Amro, activist extraordinaire, and that is Hebron. And just to explain that very last moment where he's talking about recognizing the bus station, I realize we didn't in the interview make it clear that when the soldiers shut down Shahada Street. Um, Not only did they take over the markets and and shut those down and shut down the city pool and all of these things, but they also shut down the main bus station of the city and took it over as a military base. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thanks for being with us. This has been Talking Human Rights. I'm Heather Robertson-Gaston. You can find us on the web at www.talkinghumanrights.com.